Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 15, and we continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews in a series entitled, Jesus is Better. And specifically in recent weeks, we've learned that Jesus is a better mediator of a better covenant, what we know as the New Covenant or the New Testament. And if you remember, we talked about this a little bit last week, the difference between these two covenants. We know that the Old Covenant was a covenant that God had established with the nation of Israel. And that as the terms of that covenant basically was that if Israel obeyed God's law, if they were faithful to him, that he would protect them that he would bless them, that he would multiply them. And part of obeying God's law as well was participating in the various elements of that sacrificial system. And that was the covenant that God had established with the nation of Israel. But the new covenant is a covenant that God has established with all people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. And the terms of the new covenant are that anyone who repents of their sin and comes to faith in Jesus Christ may have eternal life. So those are the two primary covenants that we divide the Bible into, old and new. Now, let's talk about the old covenant for a moment this morning because a key element of the old covenant was the tabernacle. And I want us to look on the screen at this time. We're gonna put up a little picture of the tabernacle. Some of you have seen something like this. Perhaps this is new to you, but this is in essence what the tabernacle looked like. Now here's the origins of the tabernacle. The tabernacle's first mentioned in the book of Exodus in chapter 25, as the children of Israel are making their way through the wilderness from Egypt to the land that God had promised them. The Lord gave them instructions on how to build a portable place of worship. It was a place of worship made of curtains and tents. In Exodus 25, the Lord says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That is a tabernacle according to the plan that I show them. And God laid out very specific instructions and directions for how that was to be built. And that's what we see on the screen there in front of you. Now, the thing is that the tabernacle tells a story. How many know that a building can tell a story? Not just what it's used for, but if it's designed well, even its very design, even its very architecture can tell a story. And as I was thinking about an illustration of this, this is what came to my mind. How many have been to the Gateway Arch in St. Louis? How many have gotten in the little bubble that takes you up to the top and you look through the little windows there at the top of the arch? It's really fun, right? But a lot of people don't know that underneath the arch, there is a wonderful museum, uh, especially for a social studies geek like me, um, a, a very interesting museum of westward expansion. That's what the arch represents, of course, is the um, settling of the American West. And as you walk through that museum, it takes you through the history of our nation, expanding west era by era. It starts off with Native American culture and goes on to Lewis and Clark and the era known as Manifest Destiny to the steamboat era to railroads and industry and finally the modern era. So that as you walk through the museum, the building itself tells a story. Who's been through that museum? 
okay, a few of us. So today we'll see that the tabernacle, it's really not a great illustration, but in a similar way, the tabernacle tells us the story of Jesus. The tabernacle itself is a foreshadow of Christ. And so the passage we're going to look at today can be divided into three sections. First of all, we're going to read about a description of the tabernacle, just a simple description, what it looked like, what was in it, and that's verses one through five. Then we're going to move on to the symbolism of the tabernacle in verses six through 10, and then finally, the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle, which we find in verses 11 through 15. All right, let's do chapter nine. Let's read the first five verses. I'll read aloud. You read along silently with me. It says, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, the author is saying, That's the gist of it. I'm not really going to get into it any further right now because I have other things that I want to talk about. But in these verses, we see the description of the tabernacle. Verses 1 through 5 describe the sanctuary of the tabernacle. But really, as you see on the screen behind me, even before you entered the sanctuary, there was a courtyard that had a bronze altar where animal sacrifices were made, and also a bronze laver where the priests washed their hands and feet before making sacrifices. I apologize, that is horribly tiny, isn't it? Most of you can't read that, I'm sure, but the gold square represents the altar. You see the little squiggly red line on the right? That's where you would enter the complex. Then the gold square represents the altar, and the gold circle represents the bronze laver. Once inside the sanctuary or the tent that was within the walls, then you come to what verse 2 calls the first part, which is often called the holy place. In the holy place, you see on the left that there is a lampstand, which was seven lamps, what we know as a menorah, that as so long as a tabernacle stood, now keep in mind as they moved from place to place, they would take it down. It was portable. They would take it down. They would move it with them and then put it back up. But so long as the tabernacle was standing, that lampstand, all seven of those lamps on that lampstand were to be lit. Seven is a number often associated in scripture with the Holy Spirit. And so many scholars believe that this lampstand that was lit in the holy place was a representation of the Holy Spirit of God. And then as you walked in on the right, there was a table that the Bible says was overlaid with gold. This was a place where food and drink offerings were offered to God. Now, obviously, it was overlaid with gold. It was pretty fancy, but really, it was not unlike the table that many of the Israelites would have in their own houses. 
And scholars say this just served to show that this was indeed God's house. This was his residence, his dwelling place, and he had the priests come into his dwelling place. And then verse 2 also tells us that there was showbread, and we know that the showbread was placed on the table and that there was always 12 cakes of bread divided into two piles of six. The bread was to be replaced on every Sabbath day, and then the old bread would be eaten by the priests. As we said, there were 12 cakes, one for each tribe, and this bread represented God's covenant with his people. It represented his provision for them, and it ultimately pointed to the bread of life, Jesus himself. And then once you got beyond the holy place, or what uh, verse 2 called the first part, then you went behind the veil to what was called the most holy place, or oftentimes we call that the holy of holies. Verse 4 says that in the holy of holies there was a golden censer, or sometimes called an altar of incense, which was behind the veil according to verse 4. Now, this is interesting because we know from the Old Testament that typically the altar of incense was actually in the holy place, not in the holy of holies. So why does the author of Hebrews here in chapter 9 say that it was actually behind the veil? Well, while the altar of incense was in the holy place, coals from the altar as well as incense were taken into the holy of holies by the high priest on the day of atonement, on that one day a year that he entered behind the veil to make um, restitution for the people's sins. And so in that sense, the censer, the altar of incense was included in the holy of holies one day per year. It also says that behind the holy of holies that we find the ark of the covenant, the holy chest or box that God commanded the people to make and carry with them through the wilderness, again, as a representation of his presence. And verse four tells us that there were three things in the Ark of the Covenant. First of all was a golden pot full of manna. Manna was the bread that God supernaturally gave the people from heaven when they were in the wilderness. This was a reminder of God's provision. The second thing in the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod that budded. Remember that Aaron was the first high priest. He was Moses's brother. And the Old Testament tells us there was a time when all the people were complaining and griping against Moses and Aaron. And God said, fine, tell the leader from each of the 12 tribes to set their rod out and we'll see which rod buds. And whoever's rod buds, that is the man that God has appointed to be the high priest. And lo and behold, the tribe of Levi, Aaron's rod was the one that budded, symbolizing that and showing that it was Aaron that God had authorized to be the high priest of the people. And so Aaron's rod represented God's authority. And then the third thing in the Ark of the Covenant was the tables of the covenant, or what we commonly know as the Ten Commandments, which listed God's expectations of the people. It was a summary of the law, and this was a reminder of God's holiness. These three items were in the Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of the Ark, it says that there was a pair of cherubim, or angels, covering the mercy seat with their wings spread out like so, the mercy seat being the lid of the Ark. And those angels reminded the high priest that he was truly in the presence of God as much as the angels in the throne room of God. Now, that is a very quick 
description, just simply a physical description of the tabernacle and of the things that were in the tabernacle. So congratulations. Now you're all experts on the tabernacle. You are Old Testament scholars. But we can't just stop there, right? The sermon is not just, here's the tabernacle, here's the things that were in the tabernacle. No, this is not just a history lesson. We need to understand, what do these things mean? What was their symbolism? What was the story that they were telling? So in order to see that, let's continue reading now, and let's look at verses 6 through 10. It says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Whew, that's a mouthful. Here's what it means, all right? It's talking about the symbolism of the tabernacle, what these various elements represented. The spirit-inspired design of the tabernacle was indeed symbolic. For instance, consider, if you will, the progression from the entrance of the courtyard to the holy of holies. Again, if you're looking at the screen and you enter where that red squiggly line is on the right, you first come to that bronze altar where the animals were sacrificed. That altar represents and foreshadows the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross from which we obtain our justification. Romans 5 says that we are justified by his blood so that when we put our faith in Jesus through his sacrifice on the cross, through his blood, when God looks at us, it is just as if we had never sinned. The altar represents our justification, our conversion, if you will. Then we go further into the tabernacle and the next thing we come to is that bronze laver representing some would say baptism. It is, a, it is a wash basin. It is a place to clean. Also representing not only our outer cleansing through baptism, but our inner cleansing, meaning our sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Ephesians 5 says, you are sanctified and cleansed by the washing of water by the word. It is the word of God that gives us our holy bath, right? That sanctifies us, that cleans us from the inside out, that makes us more like Jesus. That laver, that, that wash basin in the tabernacle was a representation of that. And then as you go further into the tabernacle and you come into the holy place, the holy place represents fellowship with God. And if you remember in that holy place, we find the Lord's table, 
which could be symbolic of the Lord's Supper, including the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, the lampstand representing the Spirit of God that lives in the hearts of Christians. And finally, as you go into the innermost sanctum of the tabernacle, you enter the Holy of Holies, which represents the very presence of God which also could represent the very final stage of our salvation, what we call our glorification, in which finally we are in heaven with the Lord and we see him face to face and enjoy intimate fellowship with him. And so in this way, the tabernacle, it's a picture. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of saving faith in him. But that's not all. Consider that the earthly priest that carried out these duties in the tabernacle, that he himself symbolized and foreshadowed the role of Jesus as our ultimate high priest and mediator. The blood of animals that was shed in the tabernacle on the altar symbolized and foreshadowed the blood of Jesus on the cross, paying for our sins. And not only the sins that we commit intentionally, But verse 7 says, even the sins that we commit in ignorance. How many know that we commit sins every day that we really didn't even know that we committed? We all do. But God is so gracious, he even made a way for us to be forgiven of those sins. He is gracious, amen? Now, as a mere symbol, the tabernacle and all the sacrifices made therein were not capable of, of ultimately perfecting either the priests or the people they represented. That's what it tells us in verse 9. It could not ultimately ease their conscience. It only did so until the next time they sinned, and then they'd have to repeat the process all over again. So the tabernacle and the sacrifices that took part therein were merely meant to be a preview of something better yet to come. The fact that the tabernacle and the sacrificial system could not perfect its adherence is seen and that they had to come back and do it over and over and over again. The various rituals and ordinances of the tabernacle were designed to be temporary, lasting only until what verse 10 calls the time of reformation, which is another way of saying until the time of the new covenant. Let's read about that reformation. Let's read about the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle in verses 11 through 15. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All right, here's how we summarize those verses that we just read. These verses tell us about the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle. 
And plain and simple, the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle is Jesus. Jesus is a better high priest of a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not a tabernacle made with hands, but the very abode of God in the heavens. Jesus offered a better sacrifice than animals because he gave himself. He entered the most holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves as the, high, the earthly high priest did, but he entered the most holy place with his own blood. And as the writer of Hebrews tells us, if the blood of animals could make men clean, how much more can the blood of Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, make us clean and without spot before a holy God? Verse 14 tells us that the blood of Jesus takes our life of dead works and turns it into a life that glorifies God. I hope we all know that everything that we do outside of Christ, even the quote unquote good things we do outside of Christ are ultimately dead and vain works. But when we come to God through Jesus, then we have the ability to glorify God. Jesus is a better mediator of a better covenant. This better covenant, as in the new covenant, came about, verse 15 tells us, through the means of Jesus' death, his death on the cross. And we understand that in order to become a Christian, we must believe that Jesus did die on the cross in our place for our sins, that he bore the wrath of God, the wrath that should have been ours. Those who come to God through the cross of Jesus, those who come to God through the new covenant in Jesus Christ will be redeemed from their transgressions, is what verse 15 says. In other words, they will be reclaimed, bought back by God from sin and death. Under the new covenant, those who are called by God may receive the promise of eternal inheritance is what that verse tells us. The promise of eternal life. And this we do by responding in faith to Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that you see today that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle. The tabernacle tells the story of Jesus. And so the next time you're reading through the Old Testament, you're reading in the book of Exodus, you're reading in the book of Leviticus, and you get to those numbers that talk, or excuse me, those verses that that talk about the tabernacle and its dimensions and what was contained therein. Don't skip over it and say, this has no application to me. What is all of this? It's there for a reason. It was designed the way it was for a reason. The tabernacle tells the story of Jesus. So let's come back to this idea of a building telling a story as we come to a close. You see, in the new covenant, unlike the old, worship is not about a particular place. It is not about a particular building. That's one thing that changed between the old covenant and the new. True worship under the new covenant, according to Jesus in John chapter 4, is done in spirit and in truth. That is to say that worship that's pleasing and acceptable to God is worship that we offer to him from our spirit 
in accordance with who he's revealed himself to be and the truth of his word. So the point is that we don't come to God through mere religion. We no longer come to him through a certain building, through certain artifacts, through certain rituals and washings, through earthly priests. No, we come to God through Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He is our sanctuary. And we come to him not with religious instruments, but we come to him with our heart. As we come to a time of response this morning, I ask you today the simple question, have you given your heart to Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin and put your faith in him? For he is the only way to the Father. He is the only way into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. The only way you and I can come into the presence and into the fellowship of a holy God is to come covered by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, sacrificed for us on the cross. If you're here today and you're ready to follow Jesus, all you must do is admit to God that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Believe that Jesus died for you on the cross and rose again on the third day and commit your life fully to him, to follow him, to be his disciple. And if you put your faith in Christ and turn from your sin, God will forgive you. He will save you and he will give you eternal life. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we thank you that even in something like the tabernacle, Lord, that we see your glory, that we see the plan that you have to redeem a people unto yourself. And God, I pray if there is anyone here today who has never put their faith in Jesus, our ultimate, our great high priest, that they would do so today, that they would come to you through him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.